from the Heidelberg Catechism, we read together Lord's Day 34. You find that on page 550 and following of your book of praise. What is the law of the Lord? And there follows the ten words of the covenant as we heard them this morning. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God, who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we begin our study of the ten words of God's holy covenant. The ten commandments function in different ways in our lives. On the one hand, we could say that they function as a mirror in Romans 3.20, Paul says, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It is by examining ourselves by this standard that we see the depths of our sins and misery. The commandments help us to see how flawed we are. They bring us to the point of realizing our weaknesses, our failures, our sinfulness. Commandments function as a barometer. They help us to see whether or not we are living close to the Lord. What we need to understand is that in Lord's Days 34 to 44, the Ten Commandments function in a different way. They serve as a rule of thankfulness. Obviously, we cannot discuss the commandments without examining our sins and shortcomings or seeing our need for deliverance in Jesus Christ. Yet our focus needs to remain on something else. God has given us His covenant law to teach us how to live thankful lives before Him. It's because He has delivered us from our sins that we are to render our lives as a sacrifice of praise to His name. This afternoon we begin by dealing with the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. In this commandment the Lord teaches us we are to serve Him. He is to be number one in our lives. Now there's many things that can take the place of God in our lives. Our money, our possessions, our job, our family, our holidays and recreation. But God desires our allegiance. He teaches us to trust in Him, to love Him, to serve Him with our whole heart. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. In the first commandment, the Lord teaches us to love Him with all our heart. We'll see that we are to love the Lord alone and that we are to serve Him with an undivided heart.
in the law, we see the Lord making a series of demands from his people. He commands, do this and don't do that. What gives God the right to come to his people with a list of ten commandments? Why were God's people expected to obey the voice of the Lord? To make the question more personal, why should we listen to what God tells us to do in the Ten Commandments? What right does God have to tell us what to do? Well, the Ten Commandments don't begin with the utterance of the First Commandment. There is a preamble to the law. Before the Lord begins by telling his people how he wants them to live, he introduces himself. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will not have the right perspective on God's law if you don't understand who the Lord is and what he did for his people. Consider with me the historical situation in which the Lord spoke the commandments to his people Israel. Some 50 days earlier, Israel had departed from Egypt. God secured his people's release from slavery. He did so by, by bringing a series of ten plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt. Pharaoh did not want to let the Israelites go. They were his slave workforce who harvested crops and made bricks and built roads and cities. Even though Pharaoh often promised to let the Israelites go, time and again he hardened his heart and refused to do so. It's only by the Lord's gracious intervention that he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. God's deliverance of his people involved not just leaving behind the land of Egypt, but also leaving behind the ways of Egypt. Each of the Ten Commandments was not just a dramatic sign to Pharaoh that he should let the people go. Each of the plagues also caused destruction and devastation on the land of Egypt. When you study how God created the world, you see how he brought order to the chaos, how he filled the earth with good things. Well, the opposite happened with the plagues in Egypt. The devastation was so great, Egypt became a disordered, a chaotic ruin. Yet the plagues involved more than that. Each of the plagues was actually a defeat of another of the Egyptian gods. The god Osiris, whose bloodstream was believed to be the Nile, bleeds out before his worshippers when the Lord turned the water of the Nile to blood. In reverence to Hecate, the frog goddess of birth, Egyptians regarded frogs as sacred. They were not allowed to be killed. Yet the Lord slew them by the thousands, leaving behind large sticking, stinking piles of them. Egyptian gods governing fertility, crops, livestock, and health are shown to be powerless before the mighty, outstretched arm of God. In the plague of darkness, the Lord demonstrates his rule over the sun god, Ra, whom Pharaoh was believed to embody. And in the final plague, the death of the firstborn, the Lord shows himself to be supreme over the entire pantheon of the Egyptian gods, 
by demonstrating power over life and death. Israel had been in slavery for 400 years. In many ways, they had lost touch with the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Living in Egypt, they became familiar with the Egyptian gods, and they began to serve them. Through the ten plagues, the Lord topples all these rival gods. He showed his people the powerlessness of Egypt's gods. God brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When Pharaoh and his armies chased after them, the Lord brought them through the midst of the Red Sea. And he drowned Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen in the midst of it. And thus the Lord made a dramatic statement. I alone am God. The so-called gods of Egypt are nothing more than vain idols, figments of people's imagination. When the Lord reveals himself at Mount Sinai, he does more than say, I alone am God. In the introduction to the law, he says, I am the Lord, your God. How could the Lord say that? Well, it's because of the covenant he established with Israel's patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord had promised to be their God. He had promised to make them into a great nation, to give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. He had seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. He had heard their cry because of their taskmasters. It was because of his steadfast love and faithfulness that the Lord delivered his people from slavery. In the first commandment, God tells his people, you shall have no other gods before me. In this commandment, the Lord teaches us to love him alone. He does not want our allegiance to be divided between him and other things that rival for our attention. In the first commandment, the Lord not only claims that he is superior to all other gods, he's not just saying he's stronger than all other gods. What the Lord teaches is that other gods simply don't exist. Isaiah 45 verse 5 makes the point beautifully. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. If other gods do not exist, then why forbid serving other gods? Why say, you shall have no other gods before me? If there is no such thing? Well, beloved, it's because by nature we as people were created to worship. God made us as worshiping creatures. Each of us will worship someone or something. Those who do not know the true God will invent substitutes in his place. That's why the Egyptians served their whole pantheon of gods. It's why the Canaanites worship Baal and Asherah, the Philistines worship Dagon, and the Moabites their god Chemosh. Throughout the ages, people have worshipped powerful forces within creation as if they were gods. Looking at the example of Baal will make this clear. Who was Baal? Well, the Canaanites saw him as a god of thunder, rain, and fertility. When they needed seasonal rains for their crops to grow, they called on Baal to give them rain. When the rains fell, they worshipped him, and they offered sacrifices to thank him for his blessing. 
And so we see that while in actual fact Baal was nothing more than a figment to their imaginations, his worshippers thought he had the power to give them life. The truth that there is only one God to be worshipped. It was a truth that needed to settle deep into the bones of God's people Israel. They had come out of Egypt which saw many of the forces of nature as God. They were going to Canaan where people served many different gods who also embodied the forces of nature. The Lord's call to serve Him alone was not a new idea for Israel at Mount Sinai. The creation account itself contains an implicit command not to worship sun, moon, or stars, the earth, sea, or sky, plants, animals, or humans. They're all created things. We are called to worship the Creator instead. But as God's people, it's easy to forget and fall into idolatry. We read together part of the story of Jacob in Genesis 35. Jacob had left his parental home more than 20 years earlier when Esau wanted to kill him. At Bethel, the Lord had appeared to him in a dream, promising to be with him and to eventually bring him back to the promised land. Jacob has gone through great struggles of faith, which culminated in a wrestling match with God at Peniel. There he learned more than ever to put his trust in the Lord. And yet Jacob was slow to return to Bethel. He had promised the Lord that if God was with him and brought him back from his uncle's place, he would worship him and give him a tenth of all that he had. It was not until Jacob's sons had killed the men of Shechem, and Jacob needed an escape from there, that he went back to Bethel. Genesis 35 tells us before he went, Jacob needed to take care of some unfinished business. Between his exile in Padan Aram and his return to Bethel, Jacob and his family had picked up some idle stowaways in their saddlebags. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Jacob knew he could not go to Bethel and build an altar to the Lord and worship Him, along with other gods. He and his family were wrong to operate with a mentality that they would serve the Lord, but also, just in case, would also offer devotion to these other gods. That's the challenge of the first commandment, beloved. For like Jacob, we are inclined to operate out of a both-and mentality when it comes to whom we will serve. Do you love the Lord? Well, of course we do. But do you love the Lord to the exclusion of all other things? Do you love the Lord so much that He's more important to you than your money and possessions? You see, the reason Jesus told us we cannot serve both God and money is that ultimately our hearts can only have one allegiance. Who or what is number one in your life? Idolatry is, in, is having or inventing something in which to put your trust instead of or in addition to the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. With our sinful hearts, we can make anything into an idol. 
Habakkuk 1.11 teaches that some glory in their own strength and power. Philippians 3 verse 19 speaks about how some make their stomach their God. In that passage, Paul's not just referring to an appetite for food, but to any fleshly desires. The alcoholic's God is his bottle. He depends on it to escape from the realities of life when the going gets tough. Others seek their comfort in drugs or in sex or in their relationships. The desire for power, the use of logic and reason, the adoration of nature, the reliance on customs and traditions. Each of these things can easily become a false god. In Genesis 35, we see that Jacob's family gave him all the foreign gods they had. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. He could have destroyed these idols in many different ways. By hacking them into pieces or burning them up. Instead, he buried them under a landmark tree. Known as a place for idol worship. Determined to put the past behind him. Jacob symbolically holds a funeral for these idols in the place where they were normally worshipped. Symbolically, he puts them to death. That, beloved, is what we need to do with the things that so often captivate our hearts. We need to put to death what is earthly in us to devote our hearts to God alone. The Lord calls us to love Him. And not to allow anyone or anything get between him and us. The choice to serve the Lord must be a radical choice. It cannot be both the Lord and some other God. It must be either the Lord or other gods. Serving the Lord, that means loving him. It means putting our trust in him. It means living our lives for Him. Do you know why the Lord calls us to love Him alone? It's because He first loved us. The introductory words of the law make that clear. Just as the Lord brought Israel out of slavery, so He has done the same for us. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from slavery to sin and Satan. Christ has redeemed us with His precious blood. It shows our motivation for keeping God's commands. We do so out of thankfulness for His redeeming grace. We pledge allegiance to God alone because He is the one who saved us from death and hell. In our first point, we've heard God's call to love Him alone. In our second point, we see that we are to love Him with an undivided heart. When we read through the Bible, we see that some of God's people are commended because of their sincere love for the Lord. Genesis 5.24 tells us that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 6.9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. When the Lord describes his servant Job to Satan, he said, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and who turns away 
from evil. David is described as a man after God's own heart. At times we have trouble with these descriptions. Was Noah really blameless? Was Job blameless and upright? Were these saints really without sin? No, beloved, that's not the point the Bible is making. These men were imperfect. The Bible speaks about specific sins that each of them committed. Think of Noah's drunkenness, of Job's accusations against God, of David committing adultery and murder. And yet the point the Bible wants to make clear when speaking about these men is that they served God with an undivided heart. They were wholehearted in their, in their love for the Lord. This afternoon we read together from James 4. What James addresses in this passage is how easy it is for us not to be wholehearted in the service of God. It can manifest itself in different ways. James begins chapter 4 by asking what causes quarrels and fights among God's people. The problem is that our passions are at war within us. We want things and we're willing to fight, even to murder, to get them. We covet stuff and we quarrel and fight to get it. Our sinful passions often get in the way of wholehearted service of God. The second problem we face is that we're tempted by what this world has to offer. James addresses his readers as, you adulterous people. He doesn't call them adulterers because they were having sex outside of marriage. He was calling them adulterous people because their hearts were not faithful, were not devoted to God. Often they loved the world and what it could give them more than they loved God. That's why James writes that friendship with the world is enmity with God. If the comforts and the pleasures of this life mean more to you than God and obeying His commands, then you make yourself an enemy of God. James goes on to speak of how God yearns jealously over the spirit that He has made to dwell in us. God created us uniquely among all the other creatures He has made. He made us of the dust of the earth. He breathed the breath of life in us. Unlike the animals, we were created with a body and a spirit. We also call it a soul. God deeply desires our spirits to worship Him. As Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so James issues this call. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. God calls us to submit our hearts and lives to him. 
He promises that as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. The more we live in close communion with the Lord, the more we will experience His grace and love in our lives. To do that, James requires us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, to turn away from sin, to be single-minded in our devotion to God. How are we to love God with an undivided heart? The only way to do that is by knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus loved the Lord purely with an undivided heart. He walked in all God's ways without swerving to the right or to the left. He never fell into any of the temptations Satan set before him. Jesus kept the law perfectly. It's a wonderful comfort for us. For with all our sins and shortcomings, we see our need for a Savior. Jesus has offered up His body and blood for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Let this inspire us to live thankful lives before the Lord our God. He has delivered us from our sins. He has set us free from the mastery of Satan. We don't need to be slaves in a quest for money or a quest for pleasure. Slaves because we lust for, we rely on created things rather than on our Creator. By His Word and Spirit, God has transformed our lives. Instead of being slaves to sin, Christ has made us alive. By His Spirit, He enables us to be devoted to God. Let us love the Lord with all our heart. Let us serve Him with joy and thanksgiving. For He is our God. And there is no other God besides Him. Amen.